there's been a, a considerable increase in the interest around translation in the last, say, 10 years, and, and one could be asking why. I think there are a couple of reasons why it's become such an important area of discussion at the moment. One of the drivers for this increased interest, and it's an increased interest globally, really, is to do with the exponential increase in migration flows. I think if we look back at some of the events that have shaped or have driven um, the movement of people in the 20th century, we, we think about um, the late 1980s uh, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It was also the same year of the Tiananmen Square massacre in China. In the early 90s, we saw the collapse of the Soviet bloc, we saw China opening up to the world, the collapse of apartheid in South Africa. These were all huge political events. And as we know, major political events always have epistemological consequences. I am more and more convinced that translation processes are at the core of society. And what I mean by that is, I think of translation as a vital force in intercultural communication, as well as a shaping force in literary history. Welcome to the Monash Arts Researchers Podcast. My name is Rita Wilson. I am a professor in translation studies at Monash University. I am also the co-editor of an international translation journal called The Translator, one of the leading journals in the field. And at the moment, I am the associate dean for higher degree research in the arts faculty. The main um, research interest that I've carried through with me over a number of years, it's to do with the formation of cultural identities. I'm particularly interested in um, the complexity of cultural contact and I'm interested in how intercultural movements um, affect both people and texts. So I started off um, my career really as a, a literary scholar, literary studies scholar. Um, I've now moved into translation studies and I, I guess what I've done is I've moved from thinking about the circulation of texts and the changes that happens to texts as they move through different cultures to thinking about the circulation of people and the increased migration flows, especially in the 20th century, and how the movement of what happens to people as they move through cultures. A, a core element of any discussion or any discourse around migration is really the role of languages and translation. And I'll just give a couple of examples of what I mean by this. Um, if we're talking about the politics of migration and the services that we offer to incoming migrants, so basically the intricate process that is settlement. So everything that is to do with people arriving, settling in, integrating, how we help them do that on a, on a sort of language services side of things, how we help them access... Um, the range of services available to citizens in a, in a country, but also how we think about citizenship, and um, which then brings me to how we think about belonging. And I have a, I suppose I have a, a kind of personal interest in this. Um, there are mostly millions of people like me whose, where do you come from, how, where do you belong, you can't answer by 
talking about being rooted in a particular place, but you talk about it by having something to do with moving between places. So my own stories are complicated, which I won't bore you with, story of migration. Um, and I think that's made me aware just how um, integrated these, these very broad concepts of belonging and identification and what is an apparently simple thing like answering what is your mother tongue becomes problematized by current social formations, current social movements. So I've come back to looking at how does language shape experience. It's certainly not a new thing to say language and identity are closely linked, but I think what's happened in the last, say, 20-25 years is we've seen a huge increase in the movement between countries and cultures, but also within countries and cultures. So it's that intercultural connection that is made within a given locality. And Melbourne's a really good example of this, because if you look at any area of Melbourne, there are a number of different languages, cultures, origins, ethnicities, all living and working in a sort of contained space. The other aspect that I've become very interested in is look, looking at literary and cultural representations of contemporary urban spaces, because contemporary urban spaces are a really good um, laboratory, if you like, to examine the broader social questions that I'm interested in, which, again, to come back to this, is about belonging and a sense of identity um, beyond a kind of national identity or beyond a, a what I would have called in the past a cultural identity. I think we now have to talk in the plural. There's, there's too much transformation happening all around us. I've just written something um, for a collection which is looking at multilingual currents in Europe. What the, it, the volume is trying to do is, is look at how literature and culture is representing things that are happening around us. We're catching up, really, with what, what is happening in society. And what I've looked at is, um, I've called it the polyphonic city, because I like this idea of um, remembering that language is also about sound. Um, and the group of writers that I've, I've looked at have, are all, in some way, um, writers who are who could be called translingual. In other words, they're not writing in their first language. They're all writing in another language that they've chosen um, to write in as a way of reinventing themselves, essentially. So what these writers do is they are narrating the stories of the people around them. And I've chosen a couple of examples because this was a collection focusing on Europe. My examples are from Italy. The author I was looking at in particular, her name is Gabriella Curuvilla. Her mother was Italian, her father was Indian who had migrated to Italy. She was born and grew up in Italy, but because, and she speaks Italian fluently, she also speaks Hindi, but because she's visibly different from Italians, although she was born in Italy, she's always having to account for this this physical difference as well as this cultural difference. She and a photographer went round and looked at the changes that have happened in particular neighbourhoods in Milan. And so, for example, they, they focused in on um, what would be known elsewhere as Little China. And what they noticed in that was that the sounds of the people speaking in the street, obviously there's a lot of Mandarin being spoken, but the linguistic landscape had changed 
because the shops have all changed, the signage is all in ideograms. And she has one of her fictional characters reflect on the fact that if you're Italian and you're walking through this neighborhood, you will feel excluded because you can't understand Mandarin and you can't read the characters. And of course, the obvious thing is it's not only if you're Italian, it's if you're any other uh, person and the neighborhood is obviously full of other people. They all feel excluded. So there's, it, it's, an, it's a way of considering how language can be used for inclusion but also for exclusion and how translation can facilitate communication, but also how it can hinder it. So the choice of being multilingual then becomes really important because you're switching languages in order to communicate more effectively. A lot of these writers, um, obviously their own language is infused by their, their original language is a kind of stratification of the way that they use the language. So they're actually influencing the way that, in this case, Italian changes because they're bringing all, all these other cultural influences to the language and it's coming through in the writing, which then raises questions of the literary canon. Because is this Italian or is this migrant writing? So huge debates around, you know, how do we categorize it? Which is not, it's not just um, academic, it has to do with the value that people put on this and whether or not they consider this part of the literary heritage, whether it's high literature in inverted commas or whether it's just some kind of writing that doesn't have that kind of value. And the other interesting thing for me is that in this writing there's a lot of emphasis on pronunciation which is of course what we hear when we're walking around the streets or when you're catching public transport you hear people speaking in English but all, with all these different accents it just makes the impact of this much more visible just how pluricultural we are. And I, you know, I'm probably splitting hairs, but I like to talk about polylingualism and pluricultural. I don't like to talk about multicultural, because multicultural carries with it a whole political agenda, which also implies that cultures and languages can be separate containers, whereas this notion of the polyphony implies that they're mixing. So, again, splitting hairs people have talked about multicultural and then they've moved into talking about intercultural and now they're talking about transcultural and I quite like that because the transcultural implies, implies reciprocity it's a reciprocal movement between cultures it's not a one it's not one culture influencing another culture in a kind of one-way street and for me that's really important because I think we need to recognize if we're going to be talking about pluricultural, multicultural societies and social cohesion and social inclusion, we need to recognize that there is difference and that difference is not good or bad. It just, there is difference and we need to find a way of understanding it better. So if we're open to that reciprocity of cultural influence, I think that helps. Providing language services for migrants, for refugees, facilitates that um, entry into the new culture, the new country. But at some point, one also has to ask who is translating or interpreting for whom. And, and that could become a barrier in this, because it could be a problem of um, cultural mediation or, or the, the intercultural element not being completely understood. But it also could be where the interpreter thinks they are helping by reshaping what the person is saying.
colleagues who do interpreting research have actually um, come across an, a number of cases of, of this kind of thing. Um, and they might be saying, they might be adjusting it to what they think the official might want to hear, or in a worst case, an unethical scenario, it might be that the interpreter is from one particular faction of a linguistic or cultural group, and they're in interpreting for a person who is the opposite faction, and therefore are not conveying the full information because they want to really they want to make sure that the person is being excluded. So there, there are a number of ethical complications around this who is speaking for whom question. It can also be, I'm not sure that I, I believe this, but people have argued that if you provide too much by way of language service, you're impeding language learning. If there's not enough of a push for someone to be learning the new language, they're relying too much on others to speak for them, and therefore they don't get integrated. I don't believe that to be true, but it's an argument that governments have used to um, reduce the amount of money that they put into providing language services. So they reduce the amount of money that they're putting into, for example, paying for interpreters, because they say, we'll only pay for X number of hours. After that, it's up to the individual to have learned the language sufficiently to be able to operate in the culture. And we all know it doesn't work that way. Um, and that's rather awful, actually. That's one of the negative um, aspects of this research that people do around language and migration, is one encounters all sorts of prejudices and um, obstacles. And this is where I think the Victorian state government is actually, um, it's got a really good bi-party policy on this. Um, there's been a lot of work. We've done some research for them. We've done some uh, research around... Um, the use of language services, the importance of you know dealing with uh, culturally and linguistically diverse communities and so on, and we've written various reports and and we have this big training program um, that the government is funding. But one of the outcomes of our work and the work of others is that the Victorian government, in its latest budget, has actually allocated over two million dollars to improving language services and improving the status of the profession within Victoria. Now, this $2 million will be spread over a number of years, and there will be all sorts of things that go with it, but it's a really good... It, it's, to use a cliché, putting your money where your mouth is, because they've done a lot of work on the policy and the multicultural policy and their new social cohesion policy, and now they're actually putting some funding towards trying to support the implementation of that policy. So that's a good thing. Part of what we try and do as educators, we're also trying to educate the users of interpreters that you can't use a child to interpret for a parent, period. But in, in, in a hospital situation or in a situation where there is a legal implication or in all sorts of um, really high-risk environments. So it's getting people to understand there's a lot more behind this. And it's, yeah, it's completely unethical. But professionals, it's interesting because even now some professionals don't think about that. So you will still have the situation where a medical professional might say something like, we don't have time, you know, the child happens to be in the room, the child speaks English, let, you know, they can speak for the parent. So it still happens, unfortunately. So it's our job to make sure that people are more educated. Translation and Interpreting Studies at Monash has just secured funding from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade through the 
Australia Awards Fellowship Scheme to run an intensive professional development program aimed at developing, translating and interpreting services for improved governance in Indonesia. The Indonesian government has actually come up with a strategy where they're trying to deal with the challenge of harmonizing governance across its various sectors. Indonesia has 34 provinces and 499 municipalities, and these are spread right across the archipelago. So they're, they're also physically distant from each other. So they're trying to find a way of harmonizing uh, processes and services and capabilities. And they've identified translation and interpreting as an important bridge, because one of the things they want to do is facilitate communication between their own departments, but also with English speak the English-speaking world. Economically, this is obviously very important. Indonesia is on a kind of growth strategy as far as its economy is concerned. So they've identified this as a really important element. Um, so what we've been asked to do is provide training for this um, group of fellows. The, the fellows have been identified by um, government officials within the Cabinet Secretariat in Jakarta. They represent a number of different ministries and a number of different regions, um, and we're going to work on uh, improving their capabilities as interpreters and translators, but we're also going to try and provide them with some um, theoretically informed and research-informed approaches to how other institutions deal with complicated and multilingual um, uh, communication. So, for example, the EU is an obvious example, the way they use language and the way they standardize the use of language and protocols around that. So some people call it institutional translation. It's a really quite dry way of describing something that is quite complicated and politically very sensitive, could be. Um, and it's about practices as well. So a part of what we'll be doing for this intensive training is also focusing on building capacity and building an understanding of how to promote gender equality across the board um, and getting a, a clear understanding of what the different roles are and the polite use of language and how one um, understands the hierarchy within those politeness formulations. And then the other aspect is is how sensitive one is to the use of sexism in language. It's that kind of thing. It makes people more aware of the way language works. So all of this would be part of what one could loosely label as intercultural competence. So it's developing intercultural competence, not only in terms of language and culture, but in terms of gender, social status, age, and so on. I have just started on a new research project with a colleague at the University of Warwick. The project is entitled SETTLE, it's an acronym, S-E-T-T-L, and it's really uh, looking at the language of settlement around a particular group of migrants. We are going to be focusing on refugees, and it will be examining what some of the barriers are in accessing work for refugees. It's a large collaborative project across four countries, Australia, UK, New Zealand and Canada. In each case, there will be a lead investigator looking at case studies relevant to that particular setting. In the UK, it will be someone from the University of Warwick. In Canada, we have a colleague from the University of Toronto. And in New Zealand, there will be a colleague 
um, at the University of Wellington and I will be leading the Monash part of the project. Now the first thing we've managed to identify is that all of the, there, in each case there are very clear policies around supporting um, refugees through these language services that I was alluding to, um, but that there isn't a clear, um, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence between the policy and the implementation of the policy. So that's just very broadly speaking, and what we want to do then is to focus in on a particular aspect of this, which is the kinds of programs that governments have in place to facilitate access to work. And again, there are a number of different programs in each of the countries that do slightly different things um, in supporting new entrants finding jobs. One of the um, related elements of the programs that they have in supporting people finding jobs is language learning. So access to English language programs to help people settle. And again, there's a variety of practices. So what we're trying to do is to identify best practice. And this is important because research has shown, and there's been a lot of research in this area, that a key um, element of successful settlement is the ability to find work and to be employed. And so what we're trying to do is to see whether, first of all, whether policy and, and practice come together in the implementation, um, what some of the best practices are, and how language becomes, again, a facilitator or, an ex you know, facilitating inclusion or really whether it's, it's hampering, whether it's a barrier to settlement. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is to look at discourses around migration. In other words, how do people talk about refugees in this very particular case? We're looking at refugees within work environments. And my colleague in the UK is um, has approached one of the um, large employers, a kind of parastatal employer, um, of migrants and refugees, and she's going to try as I say, we've just started, we're going to be interviewing a number of people to see how they perceive their role and how they talk about the way that they um, approach this problem of finding employment. Because we want to see whether the discourse has a significant impact on the attitude. Now, you might say we already know the answer to that. We do to a certain extent, because discourse and attitude are very closely related and the way we talk about things also reveals the way we feel about things. But we want to see if there's anything very specific around the work environment that we can identify and then possibly the idea is that if we can identify what some of those problems are, the challenges, that we'll be able to provide some evidence to inform new policy that will hopefully put in better practices. I'd be encouraging uh, candidates who are interested in researching either from the interpreting and translating studies perspective of what the role of interpreters and translators is in this process, because that is under-researched. Um, and I suspect, again, that we could do a lot more work in making more visible the role of the interpreter or the translator as an agent in the settlement process. And that would be a really neat PhD project. Um, but also anyone who's interested in researching um, 
more broadly the status of refugees, the, the settlement process, working with NGOs, um, or the role of NGOs or others in facilitating settlement. So there are a number of different potential PhD projects that could be emerging, not only at Monash, but um, with the um, partner institutions as well. A research network that we've set up called the Migration Identity Translation Network, or affectionately known as MITN, M-I-T-N, began as a, um, a collaboration between Warwick University and Monash University as part of the two universities' strategic alliance. And it is a virtual research network that essentially brings together established researchers, early career researchers and PhD students around a series of topics and or research clusters, if you like. PhD students have been the most active participants in this research network. So we have, they've come up with a series of research clusters that they have identified as bringing together the interests of Warwick students and Monash students. And they were quite broadly defined. So one is place and space. We have another group working around the idea of discourses in the workplace so how different cultures communicate within the workplace, how this shapes the relationship of people in the workplace, and actually looking at language use. There is a group that is working around identifying barriers to settlement. The most recent thing that um, has happened in, this, in the Mitten group is to add another university to the mix. So um, the University of Bologna has now joined Warwick and Monash in the PhD cohort and we've got two doctoral fellows from Bologna and in last July the students organized their first summer school. It was a student-led and student-organized summer school for doctoral candidates at the University of Bologna at their Forli campus, a three-day series of workshops um, and they were looking at things like how to work with big data, how to work in the field, how to work through interpreters. Um, it was, by all accounts, a very successful event. Brought together these three cohorts of students from three universities, as well as a couple of students who were coming from other European universities. So I think they found it a very enriching experience. So if someone was interested in uh, pursuing research in the very broad area of translating and interpreting studies... There's a number of different ways in which research could go. There's the research clusters that the students who form part of Mitten have come up with. And we've had a, a, a really good cohort of PhD students at Monash who have worked on enormously varied topics from researching pre-colonial Filipino manuscripts to looking at translating for the stage and looking at fan-subbing anime on websites. So it's the, the range is enormous. Um, the interesting thing to note is that Monash is the only university in Australia that offers a practice-based uh, degree in translation studies. And that has been very popular since... Well, it's had a lot of interest since we introduced that about five years ago. Um, and the difference between the practice-based degree and the traditional thesis-based degree is that as part of the practice-based degree, students actually undertake 
a large translation on any kind of text really, from a historical text to a literary text to a, a multimedia text, and they carry out the translation of the text of their choice, which forms about 60% of the final product, and at the same time they write a critical exegesis, which is a commentary and a reflection on their translation process, and also talks about the theoretical framework that they've adopted and their method. The idea here is that you have a question that you want to answer, some kind of research question you're interested in exploring, and the translation that you carry out is part of your method for answering the question. It facilitates um, collaboration with industry partners. So, for example, one of my students who finished a couple of years ago did um, a PhD on translating for museums, and she had a collaboration with the Japanese museum where she was able to actually do a translation of one of their exhibitions, which she then incorporated into her own thesis. So so it, it's, it's much more of a collaborative way of thinking about PhD research, I suppose.